As we said in the beginning of the service, today is Lent 1. It's the first Sunday of Lent. Uh, insider baseball, we call that Lent 1, if you want to know the, the lingo, if you want to have that in your vernacular. Uh, the first Sunday of Lent is this time where we're beginning to take account of what's really going on in our lives, what's wrong with us, and starting to examine and diagnose maybe some things that aren't going right in our hearts. And um, I've mentioned from the front that I have really bad eyesight before. Right now I'm wearing contacts. Before I got contacts, uh, I had obviously bad vision, and it got worse and worse over time. And originally I just thought I had something called astigmatism. Astigmatism, a lot of people have. It's just where your eyeballs are the wrong shape. They can be this way, they can be this way, they can be mine. I'm so lucky, mine are diagonal, and so they can't, they can't just do a simple... And so I thought that's all it was, and I got glasses, and um, it never really got my vision that great. The glasses could only do so much, and I was like, these, I don't know if eye doctors aren't being trained well or what's going on, but I just couldn't get good vision. And so I ended up happening to visit a, a new eye doctor when I visited, or when I moved to Dallas, and this eye doctor just so happened, by God's grace and providence, to uh, know how to treat a specific eye condition that I have called keratoconus, where my eye uh, corneas on my eye, they thin out and they cone out, okay? And so when you do this, you can't just put, I mean, you can put corrective lenses over, you have glasses, but it will only do so much. To actually fully restore your eyesight, to be able to treat the eyesight, you've got to restore the shape of the cornea. And so they make these big old hard contact lenses that I have. I have my hands like this. It's like they go over my whole face. It's not really, they're not that big, but they're called a scleral lens. So to, once I put one of those in, which by the way, women who put eye makeup on, I don't, it took me two years to finally be able to like consistently put those in without it being, I was like punching the counter in the mornings. It was a horrible experience putting things in my eyeballs. I just, I couldn't stand it. I got used to it over time and now I'm a pro because it's been seven years. But before before I did that, I started putting them in, and, and oh my gosh, I was seeing 2020. And over time, actually, as they dialed in the prescription, I could see better than 2020 with, with, an, with an eye disease, degenerative cornea. Now, why? Well, it's because they actually treated the proper issue, right? They actually treated the proper issue. And if we don't know the real issue going on, we can't really appreciate or even seek out the right treatment for that issue for that problem. And today, I, we're going to talk about this. In Romans 5, we just heard that we all have sin and that it has corrupted our nature. And there was a guy, you should know him, nor of him if you don't. His name is Augustine or Augustine. He was a bishop in North Africa uh, in the 400s. And he wrote something called the Confessions. And they are what you think they are. They're confessions of his life. And he, they're written in the form of a prayer to God. And he kind of reflects on his own life to think, what's really the problem with me that God saved? Like what, what really was going on? He reflects on this specific uh, event that happened in his boyhood. And we're going to come back to this story, but I want to read you this story in his own life. Um, we'll compare it to a modern day philosopher who tries to diagnose it differently than Augustine does. But here's Augustine's story. He says, um, there was a pear tree near our vineyard, near his family's vineyard, loaded with fruit that was attractive neither to look at nor to taste. It wasn't even, they weren't even good fruit, uh, good pears. Okay. You ever like, my grandma has an apple tree, but they're like that big and they taste like sour candy. Yeah, it's like that. They're not, it's not even great fruit, okay? But late one night, a band of ruffians, myself included, went off to shake down the fruit and carry it away. It's like a TP, like going TPing in the middle of the night. I don't know if you guys did that as, we did that as teenagers. Today, you'd probably get arrested. I don't know. But 
For we had continued our games out of doors until well after dark, as was our pernicious habit. So he had a habit with his friends of doing, playing tricks after dark, right? So we took away an enormous quantity of pears, not to eat them ourselves, but simply to throw them to the pigs. Perhaps we ate some of them, but our real pleasure consisted in doing something that was forbidden. He'll go on to diagnosis a little bit more, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But the question is, why do you do the things that you do? Why, why do you do things that sabotage your relationships? Why do you do things that you know God doesn't want you to do? What is it that's fueling those actions, those words, those thoughts, those emotions that aren't what you actually, in your spirit, if you belong to Christ, what you want? What is wrong with us? We have to know what is wrong with us if we're to know what the cure is. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Lent is a time of evaluating that problem. And here's the problem that we'll talk about today. Sin has corrupted our nature. Sin has corrupted our nature, leading to disobedience and death. Christ alone can save us. Sin has corrupted our nature, leading to disobedience and death. And only Christ can save us. So, if you have your Bible, and even if you don't, if you have a device, please turn to Romans, the book of Romans, chapter 5. And uh, Romans is written by the Apostle Paul, someone who was very actively working against Christ, was persecuting Christians, and God just called him, just saved him one day, showed up and said, you're coming with me, you're going to go be a messenger of the gospel, and this gospel includes salvation from sin. Um, but we have to determine what we mean by sin, because people use that term. People say that we're broken. People say that there's something wrong with us. Uh, but what really is, are we saying when that uh, is said? Well, here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 12. I saw some of you kind of wondering. Uh, my pre I had a preaching prof who said, never just say the verse once and keep going. You got to say it like six times because they're still, they're still flipping. So Romans chapter 5, verse 12. We all good? We're there? All right, let's read it. Here's what it says. He says, therefore, and pause, uh, he's about to do a, a like conditional clause and then get off on a tangent. He does that all the time. And I love that about Paul. He's, I'm very much like him. So, therefore, he says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, dot, 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 for and did see, you know, dot, 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 dot. And then he goes on. All right, so we got to we're going to talk about his parenthesis statement here in a second, but before he even got off track, he was giving the first part of a conditional statement. So just as this happens, so something else happens in Christ. And we're going to get there, but just as this happens in Adam, it happens in Christ. So what is it that this thing is that happens in Adam? Let's go back and read it again. It says, sin came into the world through one man. So that one man, we just read about that in Genesis chapter three, uh, chapter two and three, that through the one man, there is sin entering the world because he disobeys the commandment of God not to eat of the fruit in the midst uh, of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. So there's one command that God gives, uh, one prohibition that God gives, and that is violated. When that violation of the command happens, that is called sin. 
That is called disobedience. That is a, a rupture in relationship with God. And there is now sin and corruption and brokenness that enters in. And evil, the negation of good, enters in. Now that is not the same as the curse or the brokenness or the death that follows. Because look what, Jesus, what, what um, Paul says. It says, and death through sin. So this is what God said to Paul, or said to Adam. I'm going to get these names straight. God said to Adam, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. God wasn't, God didn't go back on that. God didn't change his mind. No, death entered in because what was formerly life, where there was communion and relationship with God, who is the source of life, when that's broken through sin, you then break the tie to eternal life. Now, God in his grace continues to, to sustain material life. Like he's still breathing. He can still eat. He still has children. And in fact, we're told for a very long time. But that, that spiritual life, that eternal life, that quality of life that is heavenly is now broken. It is now lost. And so death and corruption enters into the human condition. It's important that we get this. Paul teaches that Adam stands. Well, let's keep going. Yes, we'll keep going. Paul teaches that Adam stands not just as a head or a representative of this reign of death and sin, but, but actually it's like an instrument through Adam, through this one man, sin and then death as a result of sin, the curse, come into the world and spread like a contagion. Look what it says in the rest of verse 12. Uh, after it says death through sin, it says, and death spread to all men. That word spread is like enters into, it like disseminates into everything. Like if you were to, you know, pour a, um, on, a, on this white, if you were to pour like a, a colored uh, uh, ink or a colored liquid, it would just start to seep and, and osmosis would happen. That's what happened. It just took over the human nature and started to infect every part of who we were. It entered in and, and disseminated throughout all humans. Why? Because all sinned. Because all sinned. That linchpin is a really important point that we'll get to in a second before we say because all sinned. But we gotta, we gotta nail down what we're saying here that it's through Adam that sin comes in and then death comes as a, as a result of that. Um, Paul says something really similar in 1 Corinthians 15, 21 to 22. I'll flip there real quick. Paul's in the middle of, um, he's just on a, on a roll talking about the resurrection of the dead. And there's people who don't believe that God will raise anyone from the dead. And Paul says, he has to raise people from the dead because Jesus got up from the dead. And in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then he says this, as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. So it's the same, same idea that he says in a different letter. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So we kind of have to peek ahead to, to, to think back because we all, I think, have a better understanding of being in Christ a lot of times. I mean, we're in Christ by the Holy Spirit. We're identified with Christ. We're united with Christ. We're given all of Christ's benefits. We're adopted by God the Father as children of, uh, by his, as his children because we are in Christ and united with him. You get that, how strong that is? Okay, that understanding is actually derivative in, this, in, the, in the logic here. It's derivative. It's, it comes from the union that is assumed of us in Adam. Does that make sense? So it's actually not up for question whether we are united to the head of the human race in the old humanity. 
Like that's assumed by Paul in this argument. What was shocking is that God himself would unite us to himself. What's not shocking to the ancient mind is that we would be united to the head of the human race, Adam. Now in our modern context, that's something that actually is harder to to grasp because of our expressive individualism, because of how we see ourselves as single entities, humans who make our own meaning and our own destiny and identity in the world. But no, here for Paul, our identities are tied up in Adam. And so because Adam sins and thus introduces the curse and death into human nature, so it spreads into all humans because all sinned. This is the doctrine of original sin. This is the doctrine of original sin. This is something believed everywhere and by all uh, Orthodox Christians, um, Orthodox, Catholic, all major Protestant traditions, Um, this is something that we confess and believe that we are lost in uh, in our nature. Here's Ambrose, St. Ambrose of Milan, who was actually Augustine. We're about to read uh, more of Augustine's uh, mentor. And he said this, In Adam I fell. In Adam I was cast out of paradise. In Adam I died. How shall God call me back? Don't miss this. Except he find me in Adam. For just as in Adam I am guilty of sin and owe a debt to death, so in Christ I am justified or counted righteous. The logic of the argument here is that for you to actually be saved by Christ, you have to be lost in Adam. For you to be saved in Christ, you have to be lost in Adam. See, Christ came to heal humanity, and humanity is found in Adam. So if If you're totally not connected to Adam, like if you're one of the animals, you're not in Adam, that's not what the incarnation came to save. The incarnation of the Son of God was to heal humanity. There's a couple of catechism questions I want to read together to kind of help explain this and and lead this home or or bring this home. So um, we've done this before where I'll I'll read a question. It's a way of just engaging everybody. And so I want you guys to read back the answer. And we'll talk about that a little bit. So here's the first question. How does sin affect you? Here's the answer. Sin alienates me from God, my neighbor, God's good creation, and myself. Apart from Christ, I am hopeless, guilty, lost, helpless, and walking in the way of death. So you see that sin then, that's what we just talked about, that sin is this alienation or this separation of relationship between uh, humans and God. And so the the link to eternal life is lost and the curse then affects us. And we are hopeless by ourselves without Christ and walking in the way of death. And the second question then is, if you're walking in the way of death, can you save yourself from the way of death? And here's the answer. No, I have no power to save myself for sin has corrupted my conscience, confused my mind and captured my will. Only God can save me. And that's a really a uh, great answer uh, for a couple of reasons. One is that our conscience, so our ability to really uh, understand and, and um, uh, sort of self-consciously regulate, okay, what's a good decision from a bad decision? That has been corrupted. Our minds have been confused so that even where in the moment, you ever get like really angry and in the moment you like make the wrong decision that in a calm moment, you're like, I wouldn't have done that. But in the moment, we get confused. Our, our minds are not operating as they, they should in our wills. 
we want to do some things that we don't do, and we do things that we don't want to do. We are under the curse of sin, and only God can save us because Adam sinned. Now, this is a pretty big deal if this is the, the, the sin, and there, there's some potential objections that you could have, right? Some p- potential objections that, that culture could bring to this question, and I think does bring to this question. The first one is, how, how can you transgress if you don't know the rules? It's like there's a lot of people out there who, who don't know the rules, who don't know the law of God, don't know the gospel. How can they be under sin if they've, how, how can they transgress? Does that make sense? Like they don't know the standard, how can they sin against it? Well, Paul actually addresses that earlier in this exact same letter. He says that the invisible attributes of God can be discerned from creation itself. When you look up, you see everything in the heavens. When you see the way the world works, when you see the way the body works, um, there is clearly an intelligent, good, wise designer behind it. And to worship creation, which in our day is the self or paganism or whatever, to worship creation rather than, than the creator is to reject the evidence of creation itself and to be guilty of the sin. So to reject God, no matter where we are, means that we are guilty of the sin of idolatry. But even beyond that, let's say that weren't the case, um, we could just go by the effects, right? Look at verse 13 that Paul, he goes into his little sidebar here in in, in, uh, chapter 12, or chapter 5, after verse 12, verse 13, he says, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin was not reckoned where there is no law. So they weren't counted as guilty because they didn't have a law, but we know it's in the the world. Why? Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So Adam had a specific prohibition and he violated it. And after that, there were a lot of people in the, in the biblical text who didn't have specific prohibitions or commandments from God until the law came. But we know they were sinners and that they were under sin. Why? Because there was death. See that? That's what Paul's saying. If there was death, then there had to be sin. It's like if there's smoke, there's a fire. If it smells, your baby needs a diaper change. There's like, there's all kinds of things that are going on that clue you into the fact in world history that there's sin. Make sense? The second objection one might have is, well, aren't we born good? Aren't we born actually innocent with a clean slate? This goes back, this is uh, something that an old heresy called Pelagianism that was, uh, that was countered by Augustine where we're born good and then we're made bad over time. Well, it kind of resurfaced in the 1800s and it became uh, such a popular idea that it's now just an assumed um, uh, value of our culture. It's an assumed dogma of our culture that all people are born good and innocent and that we just corrupt them. Where does this come from? The guy who most really clearly uh, put this forward is a guy named Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau, his confessions. And he's kind of a whiny baby, in my opinion. Um, he uh, he, he talks in his confessions, he's writing his, his book called The Confessions as a direct counter to Augustine. And his view of humanity is a direct opposition to Augustine's. And here's what he says. He tells his own story, that's his own version of the pair story. We're gonna tell his analysis and then we're gonna come back to Augustine and see what he says. So Rousseau is recalling his youthful years and he's recalling how when he was a young man, he had a friend named Vera. And Vera had a mom who had asparagus. 
okay? Varah wanted money. Back then, asparagus was valuable. If you've ever tried to grow asparagus, you know why. So Varah says, hey, Jean-Jacques, will you steal the asparagus from my mom and then give it to me so I can sell it for money? And he, wanting to oblige his friend, says, sure. So he steals the asparagus, he gives it to his friend, and his friend sells it for money. Now, in reflecting on this event, he says, it wasn't for greed, it wasn't for lust, it wasn't for any bad desire that I stole the asparagus. It was actually for a good desire. I wanted to oblige my friend who needed money. Yet the means by which I obliged my friend were bad. I stole, didn't I? What does he, what does he conclude from this? This story, it's probably an over, it's definitely an over, oversimplification to say this, but this story kind of founds modern ethics and how our world works. I didn't, I didn't desire anything wrong. I only did something wrong because of external pressures. He made me do it. He made me do it. These external cultural pressures forced me to steal. And, and so this is, becomes his entire philosophy that we're actually born in raw nature of humanity is essentially good. And if we could just throw off societal pressures and traditions and the restrictive rules of the church, if we could just get back to raw nature, man as he is inten intended to be created, which I'll give him that, yes, if we went back to actual creation, we'd be good. But he means like in our current state, then we would be fine if there weren't all these external pressures. Good intentions are corrupted by social conditions and pressures. He had an overbearing father, and so that made him manipulative and jealous. It wasn't his fault. It was his father's fault. He had a harsh boss, and so it made him a liar and made him lazy. It wasn't his fault. It was his boss's fault. It was all these pressures. And so he recognizes these are things that are actually wrong with me, but they weren't there until something happened to me. I'm a victim. I'm a victim. Otherwise, I would have been just fine. What's Augustine's evaluation of his own actions? I'm going to read this quote for you. After he tells of that story, Augustine's taught, because this whole thing is written as a prayer to God, he, he says to God, look into my heart, O God, the same heart on which you took pity when it was in the depths of the abyss. Let my heart now tell you what prompted me to do wrong for no purpose and why it was only my own love of mischief that made me do it. The evil in me was foul, but I loved it. I loved my own perdition and my own faults, not the things for which I committed wrong. So he didn't love the pairs, but the wrong itself. My soul was vicious and broke away from your safekeeping to seek its own destruction, looking for no profit and disgrace, but only for disgrace itself. At the bottom of a corrupted human nature is a desire for sin. At the bottom of the corrupted human nature is a desire for sin. Augustine might answer back to Rousseau, if everyone's born pure, then who created the impure society? Um, it's not that we just imitate Adam. It's not just that we are corrupted from the outside, but it's that sin has affected and corrupted our very natures. One last thing before we get to the, to the cure. There's, there's two overreactions that can happen or two, two extremes that can happen from this doctrine. And some of us have come out of different 
traditions. We've come from all over the place. The way sin has been talked about sometimes has been really damaging and unhealthy and not biblical and in, in many different directions. And I think it's, it's really good to say, number one, you could have an overly, you could deny this or even maybe kind of affirm this, but say that through God, like, or through Christ, this has really been kind of eradicated, right? And have an overly optimistic view of human nature and say things like, it's not my fault or, or really where God has made us all good or something like that. And um, the reality is that we don't have anyone to blame for our sin but ourselves. Like, it's not someone else's fault that we sin. It's not God's fault that we sin. Our sin is our own, and we are guilty for it. And the Bible would say it deserves judgment. Also, when we're talking about temptation, especially in the season of land or some other time, you're not just a victim of temptation. You don't, oh, I stumbled or I fell into temptation. I, I understand there's some biblical language around that, but... Um, there's also some biblical language around the fact that we run into sin. We don't just stumble into it. We love our sin a lot of times, and it takes an act of God to rescue us out of it. But there's also a possibility to have an overly pessimistic view of human nature that just, just all the way down, deep down, we're just rotten, filthy, broken, like we're not even worthy to be, you know, step on the face of human nature and human dignity. That's not what we're doing here. Because we're actually not saying, and I've, been, I've tried to be really careful to say corrupted human nature, because essential human nature is good, because it's a creature after God's own design. Humans are made good in the garden, and we are still good insofar as we are made in God's image, and that, we, that we are, our existence comes from God. God makes nothing evil. We are good insofar as we exist out of God. But that nature has been corrupted and infected by sin and death. And so there's an intermingling of the corruption with the essentially good material. Humans have lost or, or not, have not completely lost or been transformed out of the image. It's been marred. The other thing you'll hear people say is, um, as this overly pessimistic view, is that God hates our righteous deeds. Have you ever heard this? All our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. What's that talking about? That's talking about, and this is in our 39 articles, you can look this up, that apart from Christ, before we are saved, we can't do any good work that would make us count as righteous before God's tri tribunal. Okay, we can't, we can't earn righteousness before God. Yet, in Christ, our obedience is pleasing to our Father. That's really good news. He loves it when you follow him. And he delights in that. And, oh, it doesn't matter what you do. Righteousness are like filthy rags. No, man, in Christ, we can obey him. We can follow him. In Christ, we can please him. And there's reward for that. So there's a balance. There's a tension here where we have to say it's all from God. It's all of God and for God, yet we participate. So what's the good news? After all this bad news, what's the good news? Can we put up the... Uh, the chart. I got a chart today. A table, actually. I don't know if it's a chart or a table. Someone who knows numbers, tell me. All these words, but whatever. Okay, so I've, I tried to set it up here. Subject, act, consequence, object, recipient. So what does that mean? Someone does something. Someone is doing something. They do a thing. What's the consequence of that thing, and who gets that consequence? Okay, so I'm going to read. Just kind of let your eyes glaze over this as I read what Paul says in the rest of this passage. 
He says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have, have the grace of God and the free gift by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. We have to understand the problem if we're going to appreciate and seek out and love the solution. The medicine must, much, must match the malady. The prescription must actually treat the disease. We humans, like we've said, are born in Adam and thus inherit and participate willingly in that sin, and we receive our mortality. Death infects us. We experience death, and we experience condemnation as a result of that. Yet, the good news is that just as we sinned in Adam, and just as we receive death and condemnation, if we are in Christ, the second Adam, the one who obeyed, the one who was righteous, if we are in him and we believe in him, his life and righteousness is given to us. And so the bad news of original sin is answered by the good news of Christ's original righteousness given to you and to me for all time. There's a reciprocity to the sin of Adam and the grace of Christ. And this is the good news of Lent, that if you will examine your life, whatever you come up with that isn't supposed to be there, and you give that to God, he's already turned that back in righteousness. He's paid for it. And he's given you freedom. He's given you righteousness. He's given you robes in exchange for rags. That's the good news of Lent and of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the glory of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit.